All right, brethren, well, we are here on the Day of Atonement as we've been commanded to do so. And, uh, of course, we're fasting. How's everybody doing so far? Anybody got a headache yet? If you have a headache, raise your hand. One headache. A couple people that are hungry. It was funny. I have to share this. Our kids decided that they're going to try to fast to a degree. All right, they're going to lunch. So in the car today, they're all hungry on the way here, and Jason says, Mom, what, what good is fasting? <laughs> what good can, no, I said, he said, what good can come from fasting? Well, we know there's a lot of good that can come from it, don't we? We're going to talk a little bit about it today. So hopefully everybody's doing fine. My headache hasn't kicked in yet. And that's a key word, yet. Because I'm a coffee drinker and I know it's coming. But uh, let's go ahead and turn over to Leviticus. I just want to start by reading why we're here. Leviticus chapter 23. We'll start here in verse 26, the Day of Atonement. So Leviticus 23, we know, is where God tells us all about the holy days. And right here, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 26, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation or a gathering, basically, an official gathering, Unto you, and you shall afflict your souls, and our souls will become more and more afflicted as the day goes on. We're fasting. And offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, and you shall do no work in that same day. So we know that uh, since Jesus is the offering, is the sacrifice, that we don't have to make physical fire offerings anymore. Jesus did that for us. But he says, And you shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. Now that doesn't sound fun. Nobody wants to be cut off. And whatsoever soul it be that does any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. Again, going back to why it's so important, we teach the world what God expects. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute until Jesus comes. Right? No. I always love these scriptures because God is unequivocal. He says, This shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. And forever means forever. So therefore, it continues to be in effect today because as far as I know, we're still in forever. And it didn't put a location on it. In all your generations, in all your dwellings. So basically, anywhere there's a human being in any time, 
we are to keep the Day of Atonement according to God's law. And it shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls. In the ninth day of the, set of the month at even, from even to even, shall you celebrate your Sabbath. I don't want to read over that too quickly. Shall you celebrate it? Sometimes I think the Day of Atonement can seem very somber and very serious, but you know what? God tells us we're supposed to be celebrating it. Celebrating it. So we celebrate while we afflict our souls. That's an interesting perspective. How can you celebrate when you're going through trials? So we'll think about that more as I go into this. But um, if someone were to say to you, okay, so what is the Day of Atonement? What are you going to tell them? What is the Day of Atonement? What's it all about? If you were to distill it down into the most fundamental, simple thing, simple concept, what does the Day of Atonement mean? Someone want to throw something out there? A word? What does atonement mean? I'm not going to pick on anybody. What's that, Steve? Binding Satan. Binding Satan. Okay. What else? So, like with the, you know, the Azazel goat, the high priest put the sins on the Azazel goat, and then they carried it out and got rid of it, and that represents when Jesus comes back, he grabs Satan, binds him, right? What else? What else does a day of atonement mean? If you were to ask, someone to ask you, so what's a day of atonement? Dave? Day of, uh, right, day you're covering our sins. So covering, so something to do about covering our sins, making it so that uh, we don't have the burden of our sins anymore. What else? Anything else? Confessions. What's that, George? Confessions. Oh, like cleaning, cleansing? Cleaning. Right, so kind of what Dave was saying, cleansing of our sins, okay? So that's with the high priest going in and, you know, cleansing with the blood. So the blood cleanses our sins. Jesus' blood washes our sins away. Yep. Those are all things that have to do with the Day of Atonement. But I think that there's one thing that all those things kind of flow up into, one concept at least for me, I'll share it, I'll share my views, and you can agree if this is what it fundamentally means for you. But um, as we go, I'll, I'll try to share what, it, what I think it really just distills down into a simple concept. So I'll talk about that a little bit, and then I want to talk about um, the tremendous benefits. We're told to celebrate this. What are the benefits that we get that can cause us to celebrate what this day really means for us. So let's go ahead and get started. I want to just start by saying, what is atonement? What does atonement really mean? Because I use that word all the time with my buddies and at work. I'm always using the word atonement. No, not really. We don't really use that word very much. So words that we don't really use much, sometimes it's a little bit hard to really understand what they really mean. So let's go ahead and look at what this word atonement means. So, I, uh, 
asked Terry about it this morning. What does atonement mean to you? And she gave a real simple answer. Um, just making things right. Wow, I thought that was pretty good. So if I were to ask you, is there someone in your life, some person, I don't, I'm, you know, we'll leave just a physical person, a human being. Is there a human being, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, a friend, that you felt that you had to make an atonement with at some point in your life? I know I've certainly had some really good friends, and then we have a falling out, and then I feel like, okay, maybe I have to make an atonement. Maybe I offended this person, and I have to go and try to make things right. We've all had experiences like that, haven't we? Where things are going great, and all of a sudden we don't realize it, but there, there's an issue between you and someone. Maybe you did something, maybe it was something really bad, maybe it was just a misunderstanding, whatever it is, we've all had that experience. I'll tell you, if you've ever went through, I mean, if you're, if you're married, <laughs> there's a lot of little experiences like that, hopefully nothing big, but we know that with a divorce rate of 50%, that uh, at least half the people in this country have had one major challenge with the relationship. And hopefully at some point, they've been able to even become friends somehow make things right. So what happens? What happens when relationships go bad? What happens when they break down? It's usually because someone was offended, what, what, isn't it? Somehow someone was offended. Let's go look and see what atonement means here. We'll look at the definition. So if I look at Webster's, first of all, let's look at some synonyms. Uh, Words that are very similar to atonement. So if I look up in the thesaurus, I see for atonement, a synonym is payment. It's interesting. A payment. So in other words, if uh, maybe I owed this person money, and the way I can atone is simply pay him back. Recompense, meaning to repay. Another word for atonement is penance. Someone said uh, repentance, I think. Penance. Penance means that you feel very, very sorry. You have this deep, sincere feeling of regret and sorrow for the wrong that you did for somebody. Penance. Amends. To make amends. To repay or, or to some, somehow do something kind to show this person that that you really do mean it, that you really are sorry and you want to rebuild a relationship and somehow you do some kind gesture to make amends. Maybe you buy him a gift or you do a very kind deed. Reparation, meaning making amends for a wrong or an injury. You've hurt somebody. You've offended somebody. And so you go out of your way to show them that you're sorry by doing some, some great deed, a great gesture. You've made amends. You've provided some reparation. 
Another synonym of atonement is redemption. Redemption, deliverance, rescue. So in the context of a relationship, the relationship is lost. And when you finally atone, you make amends, it's redeemed. You've redeemed that relationship. You've recaptured it and made it, made it right again. Now you have the relationship again. What was lost now is regained. Restitution. Restoration of something that was lost. You had it. It was great. It was lost. Atonement means restitution. You restore it back to the way it was. Restoration. So if I just now look at the definition of atonement, it says to be in agreement, to be in concord, to be bound together in agreement, to be reconciled, reconciliation after an enmity or a controversy. Reconciliation means to call back into union and friendship. To be reconciled means to be called back and that friendship is restored, to be, become friends again. I was best friends with this person and then we had this issue and I haven't been friends for 10 years and finally I called him up, we got together, we put bygones behind us. I said I was sorry for whatever. He said he was, and now we're friends again. We've atoned. We're reconciled. Atonement is simply that, brethren. Atonement means that at some point, something was lost. A relationship was broken. We offended somebody, or somebody got offended, and there's no more friendship. And then atonement is having a friendship again, making it right, restoring it back to the way it was. That's what atonement is all about, brethren. Now let me ask you this question. Is the world friends with God? Is the world reconciled to God today? Sure, people are. Absolutely. There are millions of people, I believe, that are reconciled to God. But the world at large, the world as a whole, boy, you look at what we've done now and through our history, you'd think in 2017, the things that we did back in the year, you know, 1,017 before Christ, and then 17, and then 117, and 1,017, and 2017, you'd think we'd finally learn as human beings not to do some of the barbaric things that human beings can do to each other. Yet, they still exist today. Just look in the news, look on the internet, and you will find some of the barbaric things that human beings do to each other. The deception. Does the world keep God's commandments? And is the world receiving those blessings that we read about in Deuteronomy? No. 
I don't think the world is. What do you think it would take, brethren, for the world to be reconciled to God? Now, we talked about in the offertory that, hey, it's our commission to preach the good news, to preach the gospel. And preaching can turn people's minds, certainly. God can reach down, open up someone's mind. The word is there, a pamphlet, something that we provide, the TV show, maybe even our lives. We talk to people. That's powerful, brethren. We can change lives. But how many of you believe that by preaching the gospel, the world at large will repent and embrace God and be reconciled to God? I don't see any hands up. Why? Why is that? Well, because the human heart, we read in Proverbs, we read in the Bible that the human heart with Satan's influence has a proclivity toward evil. Evil is real. Vanity, egotism. We're told that the human heart is wicked above all things, or deceitful, deceitful. So I go back to my question. What is it going to take for the world to become reconciled to God. Because God wants it reconciled. He wants that friendship restored. What do you think? Just think about where atonement is, the day of atonement is between the other holy days. So we just had the day of trumpets. What does trumpets signify? Christ's return, Right? And then we fast forward. We're coming up on the Feast of Tabernacles. What does the Feast of Tabernacles signify? The thousand years of peace. Peace. Wonderful. It's awesome. So there's something that happens between Christ's return and the thousand years of peace. Is it going to be pretty? Why are we fasting? You know, a lot of times we talk about fasting because it creates more time in the day. We don't have to cook so we can have more time to get close to God, and that's true. But to me, fasting hurts. There's some pain involved. Fasting is humbling, isn't it? Right now, I'm okay, but come around 6 o'clock, I'm going to be feeling pretty bad. It's humbling. I ask the question, what is the world going to have to go through or what's going to have to happen before the world decides to be reconciled to God? Well, the world is going to have to be humbled. It's going to have to be humbled. Look over here in Isaiah chapter 59 because right now I ask the question, is the world reconciled to God? Isaiah chapter 59, let's go there. Because there might be some people that think, no, yeah, I'm, I'm reconciled. I'm okay. I'm right with God. Isaiah 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened and it, that, it cannot be sa- or that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. 
But your iniquities, in other words, another word for iniquities is sins, your lawlessness, breaking God's commandments, doing, a, doing it our way, making up our own religion, ignoring God's holy days and replacing them for the days we love because they're so much fun. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God. It drives a wedge between the world and God. It creates division. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. That sounds like a broken relationship, doesn't it? When people choose to ignore God, do it their way, which is lawlessness, that breaks the relationship with God. Drives a wedge. It separates them from God. It says, For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perverseness. None calls for justice, nor any pleads for truth. People don't want the truth. They just want to, they want to reinforce what they already believe or what they want to believe. None pleads for truth. They trust in vanity. They trust in themselves. That's what that means. I know what's right. I'm, I'm smart enough to figure it out for myself. I don't need God or some Bible to tell me. I'm stronger than that. I can figure it out. You guys that are weak, the weak-minded, maybe you got to look in here for how to live, but I can figure it out. I've heard people say that, brethren. That's an attitude that's out there. That's the attitude that has contempt for God. They put man above God. Man is celebrated. That's what this is. That's what God's saying here. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth lawlessness. Brethren, lawlessness puts a wedge between the world and God. Drop down to verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, and judgment is turned away backward, and justice stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the streets, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth fall, fails, and he departs from evil. Truth departs from evil, or he that departs from evil makes himself a prey. Those that want to do what's right are going to be criticized. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. So now God's talking about how ultimately he's going to make it right. 
But brethren, the fact is, as is transgression and sin, what we see in the world today is separating us from God. It's a broken relationship in need of restitution, in need of repair. We can go and read in Revelation, brethren, and in Matthew, about what's going to happen when Jesus returns. What is going to have to happen before people are actually humbled to the point where their mind now will be open to hear God? Right now, there's a, an ego and a vanity in, in men's hearts that are preventing them from opening their minds to God. Isn't that the truth? There's an ego and a vanity in man's hearts that is preventing him from hearing the truth, from acknowledging that Jesus Christ really is the Savior and that his way is the way to righteousness. Well, for man to be able to change their attitude, they're going to have to go through some pretty terrible things. We can read in Revelation about the Great Tribulation, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the three woes, the great calamity that's going to happen to the earth, famine, pestilence, wars. The millions and millions of people that are going to die because of man's doing. We could read in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be great tribulation. And then Jesus said, and except those days should be shortened, basically man will exterminate itself. When mankind starts to see and knows in their heart that something has started that they can't stop and it means the end of mankind, that is when they will finally say to themselves, we failed. The vanity of mankind will be brought to humility. At that point, that is when Jesus is going to return. And then when Jesus returns, let's go to Matthew chapter 24 and read about that. Matthew chapter 24. So here it's talking about Jesus is saying what his coming is going to be like. And we'll read in verse 29, the sign of his coming. So he talks all about the great tribulation before that in verses about 18 through 28. Talks about false prophets. Talks about the great wars, rumors of wars, things that are going to be happening. Basically the, the fruit of mankind's Wisdom and endeavors, the vanity of man, that's going to be the result of it. It says in, in verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Now that, brethren, if the great tribulation doesn't humble mankind, when the sun goes dark, 
And I don't know what this is going to mean when stars shall fall from heaven. I guess that's going to be meteors and comets and things that are going to be hitting this earth. Like Jesus is going to say, all right, now it's my turn. The the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. You would think that mankind would be happy to see their creator come back, but where they are, the attitude that man has, mankind's going to mourn when they see Jesus because of the power and the great tribulation that he's bringing with him and the judgment that he's bringing. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. And brethren, we can go and read in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth, earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. And then you can read in chapter 19, verse 11 through 21, about the great calamities that are going to take place when Jesus comes back. So Jesus comes back, then the day of atonement, brethren. Revelation chapter 19, we can read about what you said, Steve, when Jesus Christ is going to grab Satan and bind him up. He's also going to grab that false prophet and the beast and throw them into the lake of fire. Jesus is coming back to make the world right and to rebuild that relationship again. He is going to hold this world to account, brethren. And restitution will take place. That's basically the Day of Atonement. One of the lessons that I get from fasting is that it's not pleasant. And I connect that up with the Holy Day calendar, Feast of Trumpets and Day of Atonement. It's not going to be pleasant on this earth when Christ comes back. The earth is going to go through tremendous, tremendous trials. But we're to celebrate in it. Because, brethren, it brings the world to repentance. To humility, where they can finally look to Jesus and say, Now I know that I can't do it without you. That starts rebuilding that relationship that the world is going to have with Christ. That's the start of restitution and restoration. Or atonement, brethren. Atonement is all about making things right again. So now I want to spend a few minutes, I'm not going to have all the time to go through this, but I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about why that relationship is so important. Why should you want a relationship with God? Why should you want a relationship with Christ? Well, brethren, let's start diving into that. Because I'll start by saying God wants a relationship with you and with every person that ever lived, even all of us sinners, brethren. Yep, right now, as we sit, we're sinners just like all the people that are out there in the world, not in these, not part- observing the Day of Atonement, they're sinners too. 
We're all sinners, brethren. God wants every last one of us to be in a very close, wonderful, great friendship and relationship with him. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God wants us. He commands us to love him. He wants that relationship with us. So, brethren, I think about what are the blessings? Why is it so important to have a relationship with God? Well, what does anybody want? We want true, true happiness, don't we? Isn't that what every person wants, is just to be truly happy? Jesus says he wants our joy to be full. I went back and looked at some of my notes from a previous message I gave, I don't know, about 10 years ago, maybe five five or 10 years ago, and I looked at this concept of how do you, what does it mean to truly be happy? And I, I came across this concept of a psychiatrist named Maslow, And he said, to truly be a happy person, there are five things that have to be met. Five needs. And it's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And here's the five needs. The first one is that we human beings just have to be healthy. We have to have food. Basic physical needs met. A place to live. Shelter from rain and wind and the heat. Food, water. It's very difficult for a lot of those people in Puerto Rico right now to be happy because right now they're worried about getting clean water. There's people that are still living in their houses and the roofs are missing. Tremendous, tremendous suffering right now, brethren, in Puerto Rico. Hopefully God can can bless the efforts there that those people are taking care of. But the first thing, it's hard to be happy, brethren, if we can't have our physical needs met. The second thing is safety. Nobody likes to live in fear. God says we are not to live in fear. His spirit is not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. I was bullied when I was a kid. and My bullies used to wait... I remember in elementary school, we'd be lining up at the school for the bus stop, and they'd be like this. We're going to be waiting for you when you get off the bus, Dave, because their bus got to their bus stop about five minutes before my bus stop did. So they'd get off and run down to my bus stop, and sure enough, they'd be waiting there. I'll tell you, I mean, it's not like living in fear if I live in a country where... um, I fear my life or fear imprisonment, but for a, an elementary school kid who's every day thinking that he's going to get off the bus and there's going to be a couple of kids bigger than him waiting to beat him up, that's fear. It's hard to be happy when you're afraid. I was just in a conversation with somebody. They told me they were bullied, and they tried, they literally decided to end it when they were a kid. They stepped in front of a truck. Thank God the truck saw him in time and stepped on the brakes. And he didn't get, he didn't finish the job. Fear, fear is debilitating. So, the second criteria for being happy is that you have to live 
feeling a sense of safety and security. The next thing, the need, is love and belonging. It's like a pyramid. It starts with basic needs, then safety, then love and belonging. We all want to belong, don't we? That's the whole concept of trying to be part of the clique. And if you're not part of the clique, you know how that feels. Part of the group. Every human being has this need to want to fit in and belong and be part of other people. After you have that need addressed, then esteem or respect. You're safe. You have your sustenance, your basic needs. You're not afraid. Maybe you feel like you're part of a group. The next level of happiness is when you can do things and you gain respect. People respect you. You respect yourself. Esteem. And then finally, brethren, self-actualization, meaning you achieve. You achieve something that you can truly be proud of. How good does it feel, brethren, Every one of us has set a goal, and I bet every one of us has something that we achieved, that we worked really hard for, and we accomplished it, and we finally achieved it. Maybe it was getting to the state finals in wrestling, or maybe it was getting into a certain college, or maybe it was getting an A on a test, or whatever it was. Something that we worked hard for, and we finally achieved it. How good did that feel? It's fleeting. It doesn't last forever. But just think back to that moment when you won, when the Cavs won the championship. First time in my life when a Cleveland team finally won. Somehow I was part of that because I live in Cleveland. It's kind of silly, but that felt great. Self-actualization, really accomplishing your objectives, your goals, your purpose. Brethren, a relationship with God helps us to have all of those things. Every one of them. I only got a few minutes left, so I'm just going to go a couple examples I want to hit of each one of those just to let us know what that relationship with God, why it's so valuable and so important. The first one, physiological needs, food and shelter. Matthew chapter 6. We read where Jesus says, don't be stressed out. I know that you need food and shelter. I know that you need raiment. Write it in your notes. Go read it afterwards. Study it later today. Matthew chapter 6. Read it. He says, put first God's kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, make, put my relationship with you first, and I will add all those things to you. I'll give you those things. You don't have to worry about it. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 13. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 13. Nice and crisp and clear. Hebrews 13 chapter 5. Uh, 13 verse 5, sorry. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with, with such things you, as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God's there with us, brethren. He provides for us. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, you could read about how he provides angelic protection for us. Everything we have, even our bodies, our life, is from God. He gives us those basic needs. Think about safety, brethren. Go to Isaiah chapter 51, thinking about safety. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 7. Hearken unto me, you that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear you not the reproach of men. Don't be afraid, is what God's saying. Don't be afraid. Fear you not the reproach of men. Neither be you afraid of their revilings. For the moth, the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as it is in the ancient days and in the generation of old. Are you not in it that hath cut uh, Rahab? Or are, are you not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Are you not it which has, which has dried the sea and waters? In other words, talking about the great power that God has. Verse 11, Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. In other words, no matter how bad it gets, it's going to turn out good. It's going to turn out good because God's powerful and he has our best interest in mind. And everlasting joy shall be upon their head. And they shall obtain gladness and joy. We will be happy. We're not going to be afraid, brethren. And sorrow and mourning shall flee away. I, even I, even am he that comforts you. God comforts us. Woe are you that you should be afraid of man that shall die. In other words, God's almost taking it as being offended if we are afraid. Woe are you that you should be afraid of man that shall die and of the son of man which shall be made as grass. And forget the Lord. Let's, turn, let's drop down to verse 15. But I am the Lord your God that divides the sea, whose, whose waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth, and I have covered you in the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of earth and say unto Zion, You are my people. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury, that has drunken the dregs of the crop of trembling and wrung them out. Brethren, Jesus, God is with us, and he says he will cover us and he will never leave us. Romans chapter 8 says, Verse 28 and 31 says, If God be for us, who can be against us? That he'll never give us more than we can handle. John chapter 16, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. In other words, brethren, we shouldn't be afraid because God provides us not only protection, but he provides us a way out the confidence and the peace of mind to know that no matter what we go through, it's going to work out for the good. Romans chapter 8 says, all things work for the good for those who love God. 
So that's the second thing. Love and belonging. Brethren, I can have a whole sermon about how when you connect with God, you connect with God's people. You have a family. You now belong to the greatest, the greatest group that's ever been in the history of mankind. Think of what we are connected to. We're connected to Abraham, Isaac, Moses, the patriarchs, the apostles, and more importantly, brethren, Jesus the Christ himself. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. We're now connected to the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, brethren, and of the household of God. We are citizens now of God, of his nation and his family. You can read in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19 through 21, how we are ambassadors of God and that he has reconciled us to him. We can read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, where Jesus told his family that whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as the brother and the sister and the mother, that we are all family members, part of a, a wonderful family, brethren. We have that love and belonging when we connect up and have a relationship with God. Esteem. Hebrews chapter 1. God tells us in Hebrews chapter 1. He says, But unto which of the angels has he said? Let me just read a couple excerpts from that. Chapter 1, verse 5. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's what showing the great awe and respect that Jesus Christ deserves, that he is above the angels. Then it says here in Hebrews chapter 12, Know you not that we will judge the angels? In Romans we're told that we are fellow heirs with Christ that we are going to be born into his family, that he is the first of the first fruits, and we're to follow. Talk about esteem. Talk about respect, brethren. Every human being in the world, I don't care who they are, what color they are, what class they are, how much money they have, what their education level is, every human being in the world, whether they live a good life or whether they are living a sinning life, they deserve respect because they are created in the image of God. And their destiny is the same as everyone's destiny, to be born into the very family of God. That concept alone, brethren, should allow respect and esteem to well up inside of us and have us respect and esteem to be strong for each other simply because we are created in the very image of God. Every human being. Talk about esteem. That truth, to really understand that truth when you build a relationship with God, brethren, gives that is the foundation of real self-esteem, healthy self-esteem. And then, brethren, self-actualization. I can we just went through the Feast of Trumpets. I can reference a few scriptures here. First Corinthians chapter 15 about our resurrection. When Jesus comes back and we're changed in the twinkling of an eye, 
transformed into a spirit being and living with Christ forever. But I will read in Romans chapter 8. Let's go there. Romans chapter 8. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. In other words, the Spirit of Christ has washed us and taken away the penalty of death, the penalty of sin. He's renewed us, brethren. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, that we might start keeping the Ten Commandments and be righteous, that it would be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. There's a wedge. It's a broken relationship. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. God is pleased when we're connected and reconciled to him. It says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, brethren. God's spirit dwells in you, connected with our spirit. We are in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, brethren, the body is dead because of sin. Sure, this body will still die. It's going to happen. But the spirit, the spirit, brethren, is life. Because of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ in us. It says, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the spirit that dwells in you. In other words, change us, brethren, into a powerful spirit being that will never die. We will be born into God's family. That is our destiny. That is true self-actualization. When we become spirit beings, we, brethren, have achieved the ultimate achievement. Not because of our works, but because of Christ's love and his mercy and what he did for us and his spirit in us. Brethren, true happiness comes from those things. Knowing that we will be taken care of, that our needs will be taken care of, and we can count on the promises of God for that. Not being afraid, brethren. Having God's Spirit in us, giving us the peace of mind that no matter what we go through, no matter what trial or tribulation, even during the, the great tribulation, that we can celebrate because we will have such confidence to know that Jesus, the Christ, and God the Father are going to prevail and all things will be made right, every tear will be wiped away, and we will have joy immeasurable. Safety, brethren. No need to fear. 
Relationship with God, right, being made right with God, brings us into a wonderful body, a wonderful body of spiritual beings called the body of Christ, the church. In a relationship with him, we have a personal relationship with God the Father and a personal relationship with all of his people. How wonderful is that? I'll tell you, brethren, I, when I travel for work, sometimes I'll go to a church that's not a CGI church. There's a Sabbath-keeping church somewhere. I go there, and I feel right at home. I feel like I'm talking to brothers and sisters. There's a bond that you have by being in the truth. Love and belonging. Self-esteem. Self-respect. When you get close to God, you realize that with God's Spirit in you, that commands respect. That's why we get dressed up when we come to church. That's why we don't eat unclean foods, because we're not going to defile this body. Because God made it for us, and we honor and respect God. Therefore, as beings of God, we honor and respect this body that God gave us. That's why we don't commit fornication and defile this body. That's why we don't do those things when you build that strong relationship with God. That's respect. And when you live that way, it commands respect from other people as well. That's what letting God's light shine through you is all about. Living a righteous life. And then self-actualization, brethren, becoming kings and priests. What an achievement through Christ, truly realizing our full potential, becoming kings and priests in the millennium and helping to, to save other people, helping them, brethren, to build their own relationship with God and becoming part of the very family of God. Brethren, Day of Atonement is about restitution, restoration. It's about being humbled, Fasting humbles us. It's about helping us to understand what the world's going to have to go through before they finally are humbled enough to be able to accept the truth and want a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's about the wonderful blessings that we have with that relationship, the joy and happiness we get, and all the great things by being restored and being friends with God. The Day of Atonement, brethren, is about understanding that our sins separate us from God, drive a wedge between us. So reflect on our lives, reflect on our own sins, pray for forgiveness, repent, and may you, brethren, be restored to a wonderful, relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Father on this Day of Atonement.